So what is baptism all about and why are we doing this this morning? Well, basically, uh, baptism, put simply, is the entry point into the Christian life. Uh, Jesus himself was baptised before he started his mission um, of teaching about God and gathering a group of followers. He then commanded his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that he commanded them. And therefore, in the early church, what we see is a, a pattern of people making decisions to follow Jesus, making a decision to become a Christian. And when they do that, they were baptised. And therefore, baptism isn't a point that we get to when we feel that we're good enough. It isn't a, a stage when we feel that we're ready. It is the start point of the Christian life, an entry point to living as a Christian. And you may say, that's fine. But why are we going in water and why are we dunking Mike under the water? And that's a great question to ask. So let me explain that this morning. Baptism basically is what's called a sacrament. And it symbolises three very important things amongst others, but particularly three that we want to talk about. First of all, baptism symbolises the cleansing of our sin. Jesus is clear in his teaching that none of us have a perfect record. We all do things to hurt others. We all do things that we rightly feel ashamed about. But sin is not just the individual things that we've done wrong. It's also the natural inclination in our lives to be king of our own life. Jesus taught that all of us, every one of us, was created um, to love God, to serve him, and to find our meaning and our purpose and our life in him and in his kingdom. But the Bible says that every one of us, like sheep, has gone astray and that we have each gone our own way. We have all rejected God and decided to be king of our own lives, gods of our own lives. And unfortunately, this isn't just a wrong and a sin against God. It also creates great damage to ourselves, to those around us, and we see the damage in our world as well every day um, on the news and as we walk around. We see the damage that this life, this way of life causes. The Bible teaches that ultimately this sin leads to death. The punishment for sin is death. It is the natural consequence of what it means to reject God. But this is why Jesus came. The great news is... That Jesus came to deal with sin and once and for all to rescue creation from the damage that we have caused by being our own kings. By his life, death and resurrection, Jesus dealt with that sin and that rejection of God and made it possible for our sin to be dealt with. And therefore baptism symbolizes that. It symbolizes the washing away, a cleansing and a cleaning of all that is dirty, all that is wrong and all that is broken within us. Secondly, baptism is about dying to an old life and rising again to a new one. That's why Mike will go under the water, fully under and fully out, because it symbolizes this death to an old life and a rising to a new life. When we become a Christian, we die to our old ways. We die to a way of being our own kings and rejecting God. We die to the choices that we used to make, the way we used to live, our old priorities, our old attitudes, and our, our submission to a world system that controlled our lives. 
and instead we begin a new life, a life that is characterized by Jesus himself. We live with his priorities. Our choices are in obedience to him. We're given new attitudes, new pleasures, new behaviors, and we live in the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the world. Now, you'll be pleased to know, and Mike might be pleased to know, this doesn't all happen right at one time. As you may notice, those of you who know Christians, we're not perfect. None of us are. And that's because all of us are on a journey. None of us have arrived. But we do hope that over our life, as we live in submission to Jesus and his ways, we are changed and we begin to live a life that looks more and more what God created us to live. And thirdly, baptism is a moment when we join a new family, the family of God. Uh, Tim shared this story uh, at our last baptism, which I love, which is in the early church, Funnily enough, they didn't have baptism tanks like this and, uh, and big buildings like this. They used to all just head down to the river, which would be a little bit hard to do in the Stour. We might have to go to the Seven or somewhere like that. Um, but uh, they would all head down to a river. And what would happen is the church would stand on one side of the river and the baptism, those getting baptized, would stand on the other side of the river. They would enter the water, be baptized, and then join the church on the other side. So that is what baptism is all about. So as the children are just sitting down, Mike's going to tell us a bit of his story of how he came to uh, follow Jesus and why he's getting baptised today. So um, yeah, don't move too far left, otherwise it'll be preemptive, preemptive strike. Cheers, Tim. Can everyone hear me all right? Cheers. <clears throat> I was given a question, and it was, uh, how did I come to know Jesus? Um, because my mum has been coming here for, or oh, a Christian for 32 years, um, as long as I can remember, I've been coming to church. Um, so I'd first like to express that when I did attend here when I was uh, younger, um, I did have a faith. And um, I was a spirited young man, to say the least. Uh, it would be an understatement if I just stated that I was a man in conflict with my faith as I was leading two very contrasting lives. I was both a man that liked going to church and helping the youth out. And at the same time, I was taking drugs and sleeping around and in general, quite an angry, quite an angry man trying to deal with some childhood stuff. Um, came to the point uh, where these two lives clashed and I couldn't keep the lie up anymore and I had to choose. And I remember sitting in my room uh, one night and having an argument with God. I'm sure we've all done that from time to time. And um, I, I just remember sitting in the room and just saying, oh, just leave me alone. I'm done now. And uh, I wanted to like, make it on my own, like, under my own strength. But I felt a warning come back to me where he said, if I leave you on your own now, you're in danger of suffering more pain than you need to. Not in danger of suffering pain more than I needed to. And I said, that's fine. I was like, if I fail, I fail on my own. And if I succeed, I succeed on my own. Sorry. So that's where we start this testimony. Not long after that, life hit hard and it hit fast as well. But before I can explain that and how that felt, um, 
just something I need to explain. Um, I started reading C.S. Lewis books not so long ago. And in one of his books, he talks about the universal law of undulation. You'll have to bear with me on this one. Um, he talks about um, God created a perfect world, um, but that world fell after Adam. And because we live in a fallen world that has a certain rhythm to it, it's uh, peaks and valleys or good times and bad times. And what I came to realise over the past 12 years is how I distorted my view of life and I started to believe the lies that we get told in general um, during those good times and bad times. The lies are the good times will never last. And that in part is truth. But the lie is so there's no point enjoying any of them. If they're not going to last, don't bother enjoying them. And the lie in the bad times is they will never end and you will never feel any better and you'll never climb out of this valley. So it's very important not to believe those lies like I did. So here we go with some bad times. Not long after the argument with God, my stepdad was arrested um, for financial crimes. But if you know, you know. If you don't, come and ask. But I'll move on. My mum phoned me and told me the news and I laughed because I expected something bad to happen but nothing could prepare me for that and I soon had to deal with my mum losing everything and I worried about her every day as we didn't know where she was going to live. But did that worry last? No. My mum trusted in God and she's safe now. Months, I don't know whether it was before or after actually, but months, same kind of time, um, my dad, my real dad, called me on a Monday morning and told me that he had made an attempt on his life. And that should have been like an arrow to the heart. But before that arrow could break through my skin, it shattered upon me like it hit stone. And I said to my father, why have you called me on a Monday morning? I've got more important things to worry about than you taking your own life. A few days after, I went and saw him, but I saw a corpse of a man standing in front of me with a scar around his neck. I won't go into any more detail. But did that pain last? And that hard heart last. No. With God's help, last week I went and saw my dad for the first time in four years. And I saw him with a soft heart. At the same time of all of this happening, when I was, what, 17, 18 years old, 19 years old, my body began to fail me. I needed two knee operations among other things, and along came the access, the strong painkillers. I started taking more than I should, and this followed me for the next 12 years. Over the course of those years, I began to take them for everything. If I was sad, they stopped me thinking. If I was angry, they calmed me down. If I was stressed, they stopped me caring. You get the picture. I became an addict. 
But did that addiction last? No. I confessed to my mother that I had a problem. And I'm free of it now. Time for some good times. I've got a son. A little five-year-old boy. And when he, when he was born, I, I brought a house the same month. And I brought it for him and his, for his mother. And I cleaned up my life and I stopped taking recreational drugs. But I did cling on to the painkillers. And let me tell you, there's a lot of painkillers you need to suppress some of the stuff I'm talking about. During the relationship, I was faithful in every way I could think of, and I was willing to sacrifice everything I was to keep that family together under my own strength, because that's all I ever wanted for myself and for my son. It took all the strength I had to cling on to it, but after six years, that came to an end, and I was hurt like I didn't think I could be. That was meant to be a good time, unfortunately. Did the good times last? No. No. But they don't last, that's just life, unfortunately. But in the good times that God gave me, I failed to enjoy them. I believed that lie that it wasn't going to end, so I didn't bother enjoying it. I wasn't living in the present. I was too busy suffering from my past and defending myself from my future. So last year, all that hard work came to an end and I went back to the life I didn't want. I was single, I was hurt and I was lost and I started to mix my painkillers with the other drugs and as you can imagine, it wasn't great. So that's where God's work after 12 years came to a point. So, I'll get through this quickly. Basically, you hit rock bottom. And I had a weekend before my birthday where I nearly died. But I got help and, you know, got through that. And then the same weekend, I thought, well, last weekend didn't go very well. I didn't enjoy myself, so I'm going to do it again. And... I spent the Friday night at someone's house. I stayed in someone's bed and drugs and alcohol and whatnot. Didn't have any sleep. Saturday morning. Went and partied with my mates at Birmingham and went to a house party, took more drugs and more alcohol and slept in someone else's bed. And then I walked from Stourbridge bus station up the road. And it was Remembrance Sunday. And trust God to pick a day like Remembrance Sunday to tell me or to remember that I really shouldn't be doing what I was doing. And I felt terrible. And before I knew what was happening, I walked through those doors and I felt like God's work was complete and I felt like I was at home. And uh, it's a bit of Mike's story. There's more to tell. That's um, no, no, but not for now. But that's uh, it's just wonderful to um, hear you express some of 
God's work in your life to bring you to this point. And, uh, um, but we all have different ways of expressing ourselves. And one of your ways is to uh, write occasionally. And so uh, Mike's asked Andrew to come and read uh, a poem that Mike wrote. Um, another way of telling what God's done in his life. So while Andrew reads that poem, uh, myself and Rich and Michael kind of get in the pool. And um, Okay. I have had a bit of a cold, so if I start to sniff, it's because of that and not because I'm slightly emotional. (laughs) So this is a poem written by Michael. It's called Time and Him, and it explains something of Michael's journey. Blindly, I stumbled into this trial and tribulation. Emptiness surrounds me to stand still the temptation. Unaware the position or existence of start or end, confused as to even receive an invitation to attend. No orientation, guidance, or scrap of information. I feel misplaced in time to await my just damnation. Not even tracks or footprints after hunting can be found. A wasteland of dust, stone and grit rests upon the ground. A relentless storm rolls in, pushing me almost off my feet. Why am I stood stubborn still against this unarguable defeat? So one foot after another, I head the direction of downwind, for to battle this sandy gale, undeniably, I'll get skinned. So what began as staggering steps now stretches into stride. The more I plant my feet down firm, the less I'm terrified. While unsure of the final destination, it feels that I'm on track. Then a voice without warning declares, it's wise that you turn back. But in contrast to my beginning, I'm avoiding a standstill. For to change my course now, I will be facing a daunting hill. Think best to keep on moving slowly down this steady slope. It must be impossible to make it back. Surely there's no hope. Turn back, my dear friend, again from a softly spoken voice. Although it's hard to stop, I remember I'm blessed with choice. A sudden halt of my march, I'm compelled to make the turn. The reason of my wrong direction I suspect I ought to learn. I search and strive to obtain the origin of that request. For a wretch like me, time and effort, why bother to invest? A quarrel between mind and spirit to decide my next action. An uphill fight against the wind, I begin to gain some traction. Granted that this is tough, to continue is quite correct because all I have ever experienced is a landscape of neglect. But someone is calling out to me 
in this land of isolation. Answers I may find in them to the question of my creation. Despite the fact that the horizon rests out far in distance, once more a voice calls out to keep faith in my persistence. If you choose to follow me, my friend, I offer life everlasting. If you only offer your hand, you'll find mine tightly grasping. The moment that hand meets hand, my feet leave the floor. What relief, it feels so precious to me, like the ending of my war. I wouldn't call this flying, not an inch from the ground I've raised, but the weight of bitter loneliness, no longer to that enslaved. The walk, although easier, still threatens the occasional stumble. To my friend I turn in that moment, the advice is always humble. Each step I take and question asked, my purpose for creation, not one man under grace is destined for pointless migration. Conscious now of who he is, my guide throughout this journey, a reason for his sacrifice, I feel much less than even worthy. Lost in a life of sin, but through his grace my path I found. I am to put my faith in him now, for eternity he is crowned. Right, uh, yeah, okay, I've got 20 minutes to share a few thoughts, and what I wanted to do is um, just to reflect a little bit on uh, the life of following Jesus, the life that Mike has begun um, in a marked way today, and uh, I'm sure for those of you who have been baptised and been following Jesus, any baptism brings back memories of your own journey, doesn't it, and your own decision and the work of God in your life. And so I just want to dwell for the next 20 minutes or so on... Um, on that life that we're called to live, on what it really means to follow Jesus. And uh, I'm not going to say everything that could be said on that. I'm not even going to be able to say 10% of what could be said about the life of faith. So I want to look particularly uh, at this question through the words of another uh, young man who was walking in the opposite direction and was turned around by God and whose heart was softened. The Apostle Paul. Uh, for those of you who don't know his story, Paul was a Jew who uh, was incredibly zealous in persecuting and trying to destroy uh, the first Christians in the early church. He used to travel around from city to city, kind of finding Christians and then squashing them. Um, and we, we, one of the stories in the Bible tells of how he sat and watched the stoning of one of the first church leaders, Stephen. Um, but on his way to the city of Damascus, he met Jesus, risen from the dead, and that had a dramatic impact on him, as it would really, and uh, turned his life around. And he became one of the foremost leaders of the Christian church uh, and, and did more than anyone else to plant churches through uh, the region we now know as Europe and Western Asia. And in his letters from time, he wrote letters to these churches and from time to time he, he, he reflects on what it means to follow Jesus. And that's what I'm going to use this morning, um, particularly his letters to the Corinthian church 
Uh, but before we read what he had to say, I just want to remind us of one thing that Jesus himself said about following him. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, Jesus said this. He said, uh, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I've, I think I've got all the scriptures I quote on the screen, but some of them are longer and will be smaller. So, but the reference will always be at the top. So I, I hope that makes it easy to follow. Jesus here is talking about what it means to be a disciple. And he's crystal clear. It means carrying your cross. And uh, the only people who carried a cross in Jesus' day were condemned criminals who were um, carrying their cross to the place where they would be hung on it and executed by the Romans. So to carry your cross was literally to walk to your own death. Um, so Jesus is incredibly blunt that uh, following him is about losing your life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and church leader, uh, he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Again, blunt. Uh, and Bonhoeffer himself tasted this reality when he was martyred by the Nazis for his opposition to Hitler and his resistance to the Nazi regime. Now, all of this may sound counterintuitive to you, especially if you're not yet a Christian or haven't been a Christian long. Why would the life of the Christian be characterized by death, by a daily death? Didn't Jesus say, I've come that you may have life and life to the full? Aren't Christians always banging on about life in God? Well, Jesus introduces this paradox right into the heart of what it means to follow him. If you want life, you have to die. If you seek to save your life, well, you lose it. And as strange as it sounds, this paradox is really at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus has come to give life and life to the full, but he calls us to find this life through a death. And this paradox is painted vividly by Paul in his letters to the Corinthians. In these letters, he's trying to communicate to them what it means to follow Jesus, uh, what the Christian life is all about, because they are confused. They're confused about many things. Um, but one of them is that some of them seem to think that the Christian life is now a life of constant victory, a life where they are now strong and wise and powerful in their newfound faith. Some of them are sort of triumphalist, really, insisting that now they have the Spirit and they live in the age of the Spirit. They're untouchable. They're above these earthly, fleshy, material, human concerns. Weakness and failure are a thing of the past. They now live in a new age where all these things have passed away. But that's not... Uh, how Paul sees the Christian life. He insists it's not as simple as that, but it's a life where the paradox of the cross still stands at the center. Let's read how he described his own life in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 to 13. I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we've become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor having to work with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Whilst the Corinthians talked of themselves as wise and as strong and considered themselves to be held in honor, Paul describes himself as the scum of the world. For Paul, following Jesus hadn't raised him to an exalted place in human eyes. In fact, he clearly didn't have a very impressive outward appearance at all. The the Corinthians weren't too impressed with him. They preferred other teachers who had a bit more about them. Just take in those words of how Paul describes his life, his current Christian life. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And lest we think that Paul was exaggerating or kind of over-egging his sufferings, just uh, trying to ham it up to make a point, we read in his second letter to the Corinthian church the severity of these things for him. At the start of the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says this. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul's weaknesses and his struggles were not small fry. They took him beyond the point he thought he could cope, burdened beyond his strength, where he felt the sentence of death. And um, as we read through the rest of those letters, he describes some of his sufferings, and they were physical and emotional and spiritual. We, We read that he went through beatings and lashings, stoning, shipwrecks, hard labor, constant peril, betrayal, rejection, struggle for the church, and all his own personal weaknesses as well. No wonder at times he was driven to the point where he he thought he was going to die, where he was burdened beyond his strength to cope. Now, I wonder if any of you have ever felt uh, a similar feeling that uh, we're burdened beyond our ability to cope. Well, For Paul to record this is not only an indication of uh, what the life of the Christian may at times look like, uh, but Paul points beyond this to a purpose in his suffering and his hardship, a purpose in his weakness and his struggle. It's not just gratuitous for Paul. It's not just random or something only to be endured and survived. But in these things, God is at work. And it's interesting what kind of work Paul points to. Because he could have said... Yes, I'm struggle and I'm burdened and I'm afflicted, but the church is growing, the kingdom of God expands, the gospel is preached. He could have said that because that would have been true, but that's not what he focuses on. The most significant thing for Paul is that in his sufferings, he was being changed. He points to the change that was happening in him, that these things happened, that I may not rely on myself, but I might rely on God. It was a surrender in his own life that was the significant outcome of his hardship. 
But Paul doesn't just talk of his own life when he deals with the Corinthians. He also talks about them and, uh, uh, and talks about their uh, coming to faith. If you've ever needed a friend to bring you back down to earth, you could do with someone like Paul because this is, this is how he goes about it. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are nothing, that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And here's another insight into the Christian life and the ways of God. It's, uh, it's not just the Christian life is often marked with difficulties and weaknesses, but God specifically chooses what is weak in the world for his church and his kingdom. His way is always or, or, or often I shouldn't say always, often to use the weak. Uh, it was true in Corinth and it's true today. There was a young man who once asked a wise old pastor about becoming a Christian. And the pastor looked at him and said, well, the thing is, are you a sinner? And the young man was a bit taken aback and he said, no. And the pastor said, well, then you can't be a Christian. You know, what qualifies you to be a Christian? What qualifies me to be a Christian? The only thing that qualifies us is our sin and our weakness. That is it. Our struggles, our sin, our weakness, those are the things that qualify us. God can choose to use people like that. The one thing that stops God working in our life is when we think we have something on our own merit. When we're unwilling to carry our cross and walk to our death because really we actually think we've got something worth saving. That's what stops the work of God in our lives when we think that we're, we're somehow worth saving. But when we admit our need and our sin and our weakness, then God works with us. Our pride, our need to be in control, and our illusion that we are something, that is, that is the problem. But this weakness doesn't just characterize the start of the Corinthian Christian lives, but its ongoing nature. In 2 Corinthians, I flick back to 2 Corinthians, Paul is describing something of the glory of the gospel and the treasure of walking with Jesus. And he describes that. And then in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We have this treasure in jars of clay, and both of those things are true. The treasure is real. The gift of God in Jesus, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies that Tim preached about four or five weeks ago, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is ours. Life today, hope for tomorrow, love, joy, peace, forgiveness. 
the comfort and presence and blessing of God, purpose. That's all real. But the clay is real too. The paradox of death and life is always the reality of the Christian. And notice the other thing that Paul says here, that the death we constantly experience doesn't just bring life for us, but life for others as well. What's the Christian life? Well, the Christian life is a life lived for the sake of others because we love God and are loved by him. Death is at work in me, Paul says, but life in you. And the same is true of every Christian who truly follows Jesus. I know this is true of my own life. Uh, I know that often when I um, die to some part of myself, which is not as often as it should be, but when I do, I, I know that I often see the life of God released in other people through that decision. And without the death, the life of Jesus cannot be manifested without our weakness and our suffering and our failure and calamity, etc. The life of Jesus cannot be manifested in us because it's not about us. Uh, a preacher once said, I cannot at the same time give the impression that I'm a great preacher and that Christ is a great saviour. We cannot at the same time give the impression that we have it all together and that God delights to display his glory in saving sinners. And Paul describes this paradox in his own life. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger. What qualifies him? By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honour and dishonour, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. See, not only do these things exist side by side for the Christian, but the one produces the other. It's as we're slandered and dishonoured that we learn to die to ourselves. And it's as we die that the life of Jesus rises in us. It's as we become poor for the sake of the gospel, as we give sacrificially way beyond our means, it's then that we realise that we possess everything and we make many rich. If we don't think we experience much of the life of Jesus, either individually or corporately, then one of the questions we must ask is whether we've accepted the way of death. Have we really carried our cross? Really renounced our possessions? Have we really sacrificed our rights? If not, then we should not expect the life of God to flow abundantly in us because the life comes through death. And I know, again, I, I know it's true in myself that when 
I do uh, experience a death for the sake of Jesus. It's there that I find life. You know, when I try to provide for myself and seek to control my circumstances, as I often do, then I just grow anxious and selfish. But when I manage to die to money and self-preservation and give away more than I think I can afford, then paradoxically, I find freedom from my anxiety and selfishness. When I'm treated badly and I let my anger consume me and I grow bitter, as I sometimes do, then when I die to my rights or my need to be treated well, it's then that the grace of God rises in me. When I need to be liked and admired and accepted and respected, I grow exhausted trying to pursue these things. But when I die to my need for the respect of other people and live only for God's sake, then I find I can actually receive friendship and love as a gift. Paul knew all this and, and he speaks in Romans, he writes, do you not know that those of us who have been baptised into Christ have been baptised into his death? It's why he talks so profoundly of the paradox of following Jesus. And I know we find this so hard to do. I find this hard to do. It is the journey of discipleship. But this is sometimes where our suffering and our affliction and our hardships can actually be used by God to work in us in profound ways. Because, yes... God heals us sometimes. He takes our suffering away, intervenes in our circumstances. We pray for these things. We hold on to the hope that the day will come where he will wipe every tear away. But there are times now where he allows these things for a purpose. Let's return to what Paul said again in 2 Corinthians. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced. We felt we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Through Paul's suffering, his posture towards God changed. Through his suffering, he came to surrender to God. And there are many others here who could testify to a similar reality. I myself have faced fairly limited suffering in my life so far. But there are many in the room who know what it means for God to be profoundly at work in their sufferings to change them. And if you want to speak to someone about that, come and ask me and I will point you in their direction. There are many who have walked with Jesus through suffering and testify that in these times he works in us in a way he cannot when the going is good. And what is Paul's perspective on all of this? The law of undulation, as Mike mentioned earlier. He says this in 2 Corinthians again. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is the heartbeat of the Christian. Yes, we suffer. 
We know weakness and affliction and sorrow. Yes, we know death is at work in us and that we're wasting away. But we do not lose heart. There is an eternal weight of glory that these things prepare us for. I suggest you savour every word of these verses. Put them on the fridge, memorise them, inscribe them in your heart. Because our troubles don't feel light now, do they? They don't feel momentary when we're in them. We may feel, as Paul did, burdened beyond what we can bear. But from the perspective of eternity, these things will pass and our inheritance is secure. And the way to our inheritance is the way of death. And we don't look to the seen things, but to the unseen things. My prayer is that this would be the worldview that I live from. This would be the perspective that defines me. That I look not to the things that are seen, but to the unseen things. I look to the eternal weight of glory rather than the things in front of me. And Paul walked this out personally. This wasn't just theory for Paul. Paul, um, he, he, had, he described some revelation he had from God. God spoke to him in a profound way. And at the end of his letter to the Corinthians, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had to learn this lesson personally. He pleaded with the Lord three times, pleaded. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And how hard it can be to believe that this is true, can't it? That Jesus is enough. But the truth is that he is. Jesus is enough. Or he can be, if we let him. How often we want God to take away the thorn, whatever that may be for us. I know my thorns, and I have pleaded with the Lord 333 times to take them away from me. I'd rather have that. But so often, God wants us to experience the sufficiency of his grace. We don't want our weaknesses. But the truth is that his power rests on us in our weakness. His power is displayed in our weakness. So Paul can say, Paul can say, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And so must we learn to do this. So this is the life of the Christian, the life that Mike has embarked on. It's a life of weakness. But it's a life of weakness that is crowned by the display of the power of God. Our weaknesses just make it clear that it's not us. Our struggles with sin and affliction, 
suffering, our failures. When you hang around church for a couple of months, you'll see our weaknesses on display. But we must embrace them so that Christ's power and his glory may find a home in us. And Paul walked this path right to the end, and I'm about to finish. In one of his last letters, he writes to a young church leader who he has mentored and has become like a son to him. And he, he's facing his death, and he says this in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. The drink offering for the Jews when you uh, burnt a sacrifice, an animal, you burnt it as a sacrifice. The drink offering was wine. It was just poured out over the sacrifice. And I can't think of a more appropriate metaphor for uh, Paul's life. His was a life that was given over to death for the sake of God and the church. He was poured out. I mean, throughout his life after meeting Jesus, it's a sacrificial flow into death for him. But through death, life, both for him and for the church. And he stands at the end of his life writing one of his final letters and he can say, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The faith of the weak, the faith of those who walk to their own deaths, carrying their cross. The faith of the power of God and the beauty of God and the glory of God. The faith that in death brings life, in suffering brings hope, in affliction brings love and comfort. Don't you also, when your time draws to a close, want to be able to stand and say, I have poured out my life. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. So, for all of us, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the unseen things are eternal.